You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And today we are tackling a topic that was chosen by our wonderful patrons. And the topic is leaky gut syndrome. And today we have a very special guest joining us. Um, Before we introduce our special guest, I just want to chime in here and say that I have been, uh, I'm using air quotes here, diagnosed with leaky gut syndrome by multiple people. when I tell them that I'm, you know, I, I have stomach upset, I sometimes have uh, you know, like lower GI problems, whatever it might be. Oh, you have leaky gut. And it's, um, no, I'm just a 35-year-old Jewish mother who's like anxious. <laughs> That's what's going on. That and adrenal fatigue. And that, that will save for another episode. But Andrea, have you ever been diagnosed uh, Uh, (laughs) Thankfully, no, probably because everybody who knows me knows that I would immediately come back at them. But I have had my fair share of GI issues, including colorectal surgery last year. And I think we're going to talk about that when we get to our um, our fiber and our GI health episode on a later date. Yes. And before we get the nasty gram saying that we're making light of a very important topic, Andrea and I, as Andrea just explained, we've both dealt with a variety of GI-related issues. We are not making light of this. Uh, GI issues definitely impact uh, quality of life, Um, so we are not making light of it. But anyway, anyway, let's dive into the topic. Okay, so let me introduce... Actually, no, I just missed the whole um, summary of our last episode. Can you tell I'm excited? Um, (laughs) So last week, we chatted with another special guest, Dr. Jay Van Bavel, um, about the psychology of disinformation and cult mentality. It was a really great episode. We summarized factors that can contribute to susceptibility to cult mentality, the rapid increase in these mentalities during the pandemic. Um, We discussed underlying reasons that lead to the distrust of experts and the concept of the death of expertise, which Andrea and I talk about very frequently. Um, We talk about the newly coined term mass formation psychosis, what it means, and what it does not mean. Um, We talk about the handful of physicians and scientists who um, have become very popular, who seemingly switch teams and promote anti-science theories and conspiracies. And then finally, we spend some time talking about trolls, how to deal with them, and whether it's possible to break through. It was a fantastic episode, so definitely go back and check that out if you didn't already listen to it. Um, And this week, we are joined, as I said by another fantastic special guest, Dr. Jesse Hoffman. Dr. Hoffman is a registered dietitian, assistant professor at Winthrop University, and researcher in the field of human nutrition. Her diet 
diet dietetic no dietetic yeah. am i saying that right <laughs> yeah. her dietetic and research expertise are in gastrointestinal conditions and the gut microbiome additionally jesse is passionate about scientific and nutritional science communication and does so regularly through social media from breaking down nutrition science to busting myths that are so prevalent in today's society, she strives to empower individuals to become responsible consumers of social media content and experts on their own bodies. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to dive into this topic with you all. <laughs> we are too. And for our listeners, if you do want to check out Jesse's Instagram, you can follow her at Jesse Hall. Hoffman underscore PhD. Um, she's constantly posting information about various topics in nutritional sciences, lots of debunks, and clearing up some misinformation for you all. All right, Andrea, do you want to kind of kick things off uh, with an intro to leaky gut? <laughs> sure. So leaky gut syndrome is... A term that's kind of used as a catch-all, um, leaky gut is also referred to sometimes as increased intestinal permeability, and it's a so-called digestive condition in which bacteria, undigested food particles, and toxins are able to somehow leak through our intestinal wall and get into our bloodstream. Um, this Diagnoses has become very popular among a variety of natural health um, and alternative practitioners, and they often use this diagnosis of leaky gut syndrome to explain a very wide array of a variety of ailments and symptoms. So anything from you know GI-related things like bloating and gas and cramps and diarrhea, but but other things too like headaches and brain fog and arthritis and and some people even implicated in in autism. Um, they also often um, attribute leaky gut syndrome to food sensitivities. And if you remember our um, our episode on food sensitivity testing with Dr. Dave Stukas, we debunked, um, you know, the fallacy that, that food sensitivity testing is a legitimate way to, to determine these sorts of things. So proponents of leaky gut syndrome, as I mentioned, they use this kind of vague description to explain a variety of these generic and nonspecific symptoms, everything from these immediate immediate conditions associated with the gastrointestinal tract to pretty much any sort of systemic ailment. And again, I just, I want to go back because it ha we have to underscore this. I guess I'm trying to preempt um, <laughs> the trolls here, Andrea, but uh, we we are not trying to, um, you know, down, downplay the impact of things, you know, chronic digestive issues. So just to set the stage here from a population health perspective, 20 million Americans suffer from chronic digestive issues issues. Um, digestive diseases are one of the most prevalent causes of disability in the workforce. More Americans are hospitalized with digestive diseases than any other condition, and digestive diseases rank third among illnesses in total economic cost in the U.S. And these data come from the GI Alliance, and we'll make sure to link to it um, in our show notes. So, Jesse, 
can you talk to us a little bit about um, maybe give a brief description of how we digest food and just some background information here? Yeah, sure. So what I like to start off with, um, I guess, when we're t- when we're talking about leaky gut is just the highlighting that the term leaky gut seems super simplified. Um, and it is truthfully, when we dive into this, hopefully you'll realize that this is a super complex topic that the term leaky gut doesn't even begin to kind of scrape the surface on how complex it is. So to kind of get started and give you an overview about the GI tract, itself, because if you haven't had a biology class recently or haven't taken any sort of course on anatomy, you may need a little bit of a refresher. So the GI tract is basically refers to everything from the mouth to the anus. So you start digesting food actually before you even begin eating it. Um, The sight of food and just interacting with your food environment kind of preps your body for the digestive process. So your body already starts secreting some of the enzymes and compounds that are needed to break down, mainly in the mouth. So once food hits the mouth, you have um, different compounds that are within your saliva that get released that start to break down some of those molecules before you begin to kind of chew it and swallow it. So we have what's called chemical and mechanical digestion going on, that chemical being enzymatic related. So you have all of those enzymes that are truthfully just getting at the um, macronutrients and nutrients that you're eating and breaking chemical bonds, making them smaller, making them easier easier for our gut to handle later. Um, And then you have mechanical digestion, which in our mouth is chewing, in our stomach, it's a lot of churning and moving around. Um, And then throughout our intestine, you have um, something called like peristalsis and segmentation that basically just kind of squeeze and they're like muscular contractions that move food along through the GI tract. So once you swallow food, it goes down through your esophagus, hits your stomach, and your stomach it mixes with stomach acid. Um, you have different enzymes that are secreted there that help you break down some proteins and things like that. Once you leave the stomach, it enters your small intestine, which is a really massive organ. Um, we actually divide it into three different sections. Um, the beginning part is the duodenum. So that's like right when you get from the stomach into the beginning part of the small intestine. That's called a duodenum. And then we reach the jejunum, which is probably the most important aspect when we talk about nutrition because a lot of our nutrients nutrients are fully broken down and then absorbed in the jejunum. So that's the middle part. And then we get to the end part of the small intestine. That's called the ileum. And we start to see there a little bit of our gut microbes start to kind of peak up um, kind of from the colon into the beginning, um, that in section of the ileum. And we'll kind of continue digestive processes there. And then once we reach the large intestine, we absorb any of the remaining nutrients that are needed. That's where our gut microbiome reside predominantly. So they're going to break down foods that we can't break down. They really love that fiber. They're going to metabolize that, use it for their own energy, produce a lot of compounds um, that are theoretically and a lot of times beneficial to us, um, help us kind of form that fecal matter, and then we excrete it. Um, So that's kind of an overview of the long GI tract. But when we're talking about leaky gut, um, the most important aspect that we tend to mostly talk about is the small intestine. And then we can also talk a little bit of, quote unquote, leakiness that exists within the colon as well. Yeah, Jesse, I mean, that's an amazing summary. I think everybody now has a really good picture of kind of the whole GI tract. And I think you made a really important point that, you know, the GI system is full of microbes to begin with. We have lots of viruses and fungi and bacteria that are commensal, meaning they are they exist as a part of us and 
They help us digest food. They help us extract nutrients that our cells can't otherwise. And they're also important in this education of the immune system. So it helps our immune system recognize that they are healthy microorganisms that we don't need to mount a defense against versus a pathogenic microorganism that we could be become infected by. And I think, you know, when when we're talking about the intestine, you know, it is an organ, but of course we know organs are all made up of cells. And so, you know, this this term leaky gut, of course, has a nugget of truth in it. And that's ultimately why a lot of these fake medical diagnoses gain traction, because they have this kind of grain of science associated with them. So if you actually look at the structure of the intestines and this that term, you know, permeability, it becomes apparent why this, you know, may have gotten traction. And, um, you know, so maybe I'll start and then you can jump in. So um, your small intestine, which is kind of the, the region that's most commonly associated associated with this leaky gut um, has four different layers in this. So it's this 20 foot long tract that's, you know, you can kind of think of it like a tube, but it's it's a little bit more complicated than that, um, but has four layers in in the tissue. So you have the mucosal layer, which is the, the outermost layer or the innermost layer. That's the stuff that's touching your food products, the submucosa, the muscular layer, and the adventitia. And so the mucosa is formed by a network of epithelial cells, which are essentially skin cells, and they secrete mucus as a protective layer. So they're protecting our cells. Mucus also ensures that pathogenic bacteria can't adhere to our cells and infect us. Um, It also ensures that the food can keep moving through the intestinal tract um, really easily. And those cells that are in the mucosal layer, they are the cells that are helping us to absorb and transport nutrients. So obviously when we eat something, it doesn't just, you know, spontaneously, you know, go from our mouth, our GI tract to fueling our bodies. We have to actually break down those molecules, absorb the calories and the various nutrients that are in those food products and transport those macromolecules to our cells to be converted into usable energy. Um, So Jesse, maybe you can kind of give us a, like a tour of the architecture of the mucosa. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah. So the cells that exist um, within our gut are, and the way our small intestine is organized is actually really unique. Um, so like Andrew was saying, like the main functions of the mucosa are to help us absorb and transport those nutrients. So in the small intestine, having the most surface area possible um, is really great to ensure that we're absorbing the maximum amount of nutrients possible. So in our small intestine, it is not just like a straight flat layer of cells. You have all of these cells that have, well, it's 
the cells themselves kind of align themselves in something called villi. Um, and these are villi are finger-like projections. Um, and you can kind of analogize it to like a roller coaster. So they kind of go up and down. And what that ensures is to increase the surface area of the small intestine, ensure that we're absorbing as many nutrients as possible. But what's really cool is that the little cells that line this villi also have microvilli. So they have little tiny projections on them as well that look the same as big villi that help facilitate greater nutrient absorption. Um, And we have a lot of our enzymes that are secreted right at that level too, to kind of ensure that we're breaking down all of the nutrients possible right before the absorption process. Um, So that is really how our small intestine is maximizing nutrient absorption. Um, And what's really important when these cells, these um, epithelial cells that are aligning together, we can call them enterocytes, they are formed... um, and sealed very tightly. So we don't want things to get through them that necessarily can't, isn't supposed to get through them. Um, so there's numerous things that kind of seal these together. So we have um, tight junction proteins, which are just molecules that form little, like you can think of kind of like just cement, um, kind of sealing these cells together. We also have um, other junctions that exist within there. So we have something called adherence junctions that are kind of similar. We have gap junctions and we have something called desmosomes. And all of these together work to kind of form like a scaffolding to really seal the intestinal cells tightly together to not let things through that we don't want them through. Um, The things that we want to get through the intestinal wall often have transporters or mechanisms um, and pores specific mechanisms in which we can move those across the intestinal cell wall. Um, So these tight junctions and these junctions really secure that intestinal layer. We also have that surface mucus too, which really kind of serves as a protective layer, like Andrea had already kind of um, mentioned. Our microbes are really important in kind of sealing this barrier as well. And then they also, like Andrea mentioned, secrete some different um, uh, microbial peptides that kind of prevent pathogens from taking up. Um, So this is really all of these together is how our gut seals itself. And then that leads us into kind of where leaky gut comes in. So basically, that is just when some of those functions fail or are not fully sealed um, is when the idea of leaky gut or intestinal permeability comes into play because things that are not supposed to be leaking through, quote unquote, the the intestinal cell wall um, begin to because some of those tight junctions are faulty. Maybe that mucosal layer um, is kind of damaged or you have different microbes that are actually degrading the mucosal layer at too high of a rate or something like that. Um, And then maybe an improper immune uh, response that's kind of playing into that role as well. And I think, Jesse, it's important to mention, you know, so you have these junctions, these tight junctions and these, you know, boundaries between adjacent cells that are kind of structured in this this villi, you know, um, organization, but you still have to transport things across, right? So there are minute gaps in the junctions to begin with and, and cells themselves are dynamic and mobile and they're reorganizing and regenerating. And so, you know, things like water molecules and, you know, small molecules of various nutrients, amino acids, um, nucleic acids, Acids, things like that that are all byproducts of digestion are 
being transferred from the side of those cells that have the microvilli to the submucosal layer where ultimately they're going to get transported into the bloodstream to be distributed around the body. So, you know, in a very simplistic scientific view, everybody technically has permeability in their gut because you need to be able to actually transport these molecules in order to utilize them, right? That's ultimately the goal of our intestinal tract. Um, And so, you know, that's kind of where the logic of leaky gut syndrome has come into play because proponents of it call this increased intestinal permeability or hyperpermeability. So they claim that these tight junctions have have become loose and they've formed cracks and now and now undigested food and bacteria and toxins are now entering the bloodstream which which is leading to some sort of systemic inflammation and causing these symptoms associated with all of these medical issues like brain fog or arthritis or things like that and and I want to really take a moment here to talk about the fact that this is a really tightly regulated process, this, this you know, digestion and, and uh, transport of molecules and even the peristalsis in our intestines. And if bacteria were somehow leaking from our intestine into our bloodstream, we would be developing systemic infections, which lead to sepsis and septic shock. And this would be a life-threatening condition. So, you know, these sorts of claims that suggest that bacteria are somehow invading your bloodstream through your gut should raise a little bit of a red flag because a bloodborne bacterial infection is certainly, you know, a critical medical issue. Yeah, very serious. And you would 100% know, and it wouldn't be necessarily, <laughs> you wouldn't be like, oh, I feel a little like foggy today. Like, I wonder if I'm like have bacteria floating around my bloodstream. Like right. you would 100% know, and you would probably not be like conscious of everything that's happening in the room. (laughs) You would have super high fever, all sorts of other, you would probably be unconscious, maybe comatose. I mean, it would be, yeah, you would know for sure. And a lot of proponents of leaky gut, uh, and this is, I think, the the frustrating part because, you know, Jesse, you've done a great job of explaining how complex the GI tract is in and of itself, but also you have immune cells that are patrolling different regions of those villi in the intestine, um, and they're kind of sampling and scoping out the situation and, you know, trying to determine if there's a pathogenic bacteria or virus that got in through food. You know, we know that there are foodborne infections and and things like that, Um, but they know not to respond or react to the microbiome, the healthy bacteria that live in our gut. And, you know, people often say, okay, well, you know, the leaky gut's causing inflammation or, you know, you have to eat an anti-inflammatory diet. And, And inflammation is used as this kind of catch-all for every sort of vague medical anything. And, you know, what people don't realize is the immune system is constantly working and it's balancing inflammation and anti-inflammation. And you have to have both. And it's, you know, everything you consume ultimately leads to some sort of inflammatory temporary inflammation because that's the process of digesting food and and a cellular process of cellular respiration. It, It leads to an immune response, the production of things like free radicals, and lumping everything into this inflammation is is really a misnomer because 
inflammation in and of itself is not necessarily bad and it's also not necessarily good. It just, it just is. Yeah. And inflammation and like the inflammatory process. And within this, you kind of mentioned it goes like our reduction oxidation, kind of, we call that redox status process. So that's the process of like oxidative compounds and then antioxidants within our body. Um, Those are super tightly regulated and the way our body and kind of responds and kind of maintains like homeostasis is having a balance of those two. And you can go in either way and have not enough inflammation to where your response is suboptimal and you can have too much, just like you can, ha- you can take too many antioxidant supplements and override your natural oxidant mechanisms that are kind of keeping your body in that middle ground kind of homeostasis point. Exactly. So, you know, when we talk about leaky gut syndrome, there, there are some medical conditions that are potentially affiliated with changes in normal gut function, potentially intestinal permeability. And Jesse, maybe you can talk a little bit about those and maybe lead into kind of why that's not necessarily applicable to the population at large. Yeah, so we see a quote-unquote increased intestinal permeability in individuals oftentimes that have specific GI conditions. Um, but what a lot of unqualified practitioners or people trying to treat uh, quote-unquote leaky gut is will tell individuals that the leaky gut is what's causing that condition. When in reality, those conditions and the the imbalance of either an immune response or an inflammatory response or something that's occurring in the gut is actually what's leading to maybe a little bit of a breakdown of that intestinal barrier. So it's not really the leaky gut that is causing these issues. It's really um, leaky gut is more so a symptom. And I hate saying leaky gut is a symptom because it's not a diagnosis, (laughs) but like the increased intestinal permeability is more so a symptom of certain conditions and it's not the cause necessarily. Can I ask a question? Actually, Jesse, you you just said something that was really interesting. You said that um, leaky gut is not the, what did you say? It's not, not, a, not a, a diagnosis. It's not a diagnosis. Sorry. Yeah. It's not a diagnosis. But when I searched this term to prepare for this episode, and clearly I'm contributing so much, um, I, I saw so many legitimate universities universities, medical associations were using this term. So is it just that it's what's been picked up by pop culture? You know, how is it that this has come to be? I don't know if if I'd say it's an accepted term, but it's definitely used by by credible institutions. Yeah. So um, it is a used term and it's perfectly fine and, and applicable to be used. So it leaky gut is just Honestly, I believe individuals and scientists started using it because it's something that um, the the public can relate more to. When you say leaky gut, they can kind of have an image of, oh, okay, I guess what that means. Rather than when you say intestinal permeability, they're like, hmm, <laughs> those are big words. Um, but... It is a true thing, and we can measure this in like clinical uh, experimental settings. The issue is it's not a true diagnosis because it lacks diagnostic criteria, adequate tools to diagnose, which we can get into a little bit maybe, um, and then actual like symptoms that are associated with it. Um, so it is a valid term we can use when we talk about it. So we use the term leaky gut and intestinal permeability because they are legitimate things. And this is where the pseudoscience comes in. Like they are legitimate. However, the way in which people are going about u- utilizing them and trying to claim to diagnose and claim to treat leaky gut and claim that there's symptoms associated with it um, is where the pseudoscience part kind of comes in. Yeah. And I think, Jesse, you made a great distinction there. There's a difference between 
using the term leaky gut used to describe the permeability of intestinal cells in science versus leaky gut as a medical condition, a medical diagnosis, a causative agent for, you know, um, ir- you know, inflammatory bowel disease, autism, moodiness, irritability, eczema, arthritis, etc. Yeah. So, you know, as of right now, yes, there is a scientific phenomenon in which the architecture of our intestinal cells have a degree of permeability. There are certain medical conditions that are implicated in having changes to that that are legitimate digestive issues like Crohn's or celiac disease, which are actual, you know, bowel-related issues. But there are no scientific data that validate or support the claims that some sort of, you know, systemic leaky gut syndrome causes these ailments that are often linked to it, like chronic diarrhea or non-functioning immune system or brain fog or fatigue or rashes or arthritis or certainly not autism. Um, But let's talk a little bit about some of the diagnostics that are used in, let's say, pop science or pop medicine. Yeah. So the diagnoses, quote unquote, for intestinal permeability or leaky gut um, were actually developed um, and currently only really validated to be used experimentally and in a laboratory setting and not necessarily used to diagnose leaky gut syndrome, leaky gut conditions and things like that. But they are uh, methods that are valid for their experimental purpose in the lab. A lot of them um, are most valid, what we would call ex vivo, so outside of the body. Um, A lot of times that would require using animal cells to kind of assess the movement of some of these particles through intestinal layers, or you would actually have to do like a biopsy um, of the intestine of a human and then transplant it into like a cell culture dish and then do some of those measurements there. And those tend to be what we would consider more valid for experimental purposes to really being able to test the quote unquote leakiness of those cells. Um, But they're not really helpful in like a clinical setting because, I mean, I don't know who's signing up to get just like biopsies of their gut just for funsies. We've talked about this at length. There's a very big difference between what is done in an animal model or in a Petri dish versus what occurs in a human being. Yeah. And I don't want to like discourage people that we won't be able to in the future look more closely at our intestinal barrier and be able to understand this further. But to kind of just highlight, this is how science works. We're currently validating a lot of these methods in the lab, trying to figure out the exact process that's going on, what's contributing to the process, how can we best assess some of these things in humans um, for doing with the least risk, doing the least amount of harm and providing the greatest amount of benefit. So it's not to say that in the future, we won't be able to kind of get to some of uh, more, maybe some more diagnostic or understanding of how our intestinal barrier permeability may impact other conditions throughout the body. Um, It's to say that we aren't there yet. But some of the diagnostic criteria, quote unquote, diagnostic criteria or diagnostic test that um, they'll use in a laboratory setting just for research purposes. I want to keep highlighting like just for research purposes, um, these things are being used. One of the most common is something called like a differential sugar test or a mannitol lactulose urine test. So this test is really unique and it's pretty easy to understand. So I really like explaining this one, but it's basically lactulose and mannitol are two different sugars. And so basically, 
basically what you do is you have someone consume these and then you look at the ratio of sugars in the urine. So mannitol is a monosaccharide, meaning it is a very small sugar molecule. And then lactulose, and you can use other compounds too, but lactulose is the most commonly used one. It's a disaccharide and it's a little bit bigger of a molecule. So mannitol should be easily able to pass through the intestinal cell wall. We should be we should be able to see that in the urine. Um, and so it gets into the bloodstream, goes through all the processes when their body ends up in our urine. Lactulose, we don't really want to see that happen because it sh- ideally shouldn't kind of be crossing that barrier because it's a bigger molecule. It would have to have kind of transport mechanisms to get that across. Um, and so though that is one of the tests that is used um, most commonly, but it does have a lot of downsides in that the ratio to mannitol and lactulose in the urine doesn't always necessarily reflect the amounts that should be absorbed in the intestine. Um, and it's just not really fully validated yet. It's one of those things where the idea is there pretty, it sounds like a sound idea, but it doesn't necessarily mean that um, that test is fully valid and diagnostic yet. Um, There are some other measures that we can do as well. One that you might see um, is just measurement, and it's kind of more of an indirect measurement of quote-unquote intestinal permeability, leaky gut, um, is measuring molecules within the blood or the feces. Um, Again, kind of the same idea with that um, mannitol lactulose assay is looking at things that shouldn't be in our our bloodstream or in our fecal um, matter um, per se. So something that individuals look at um, commonly is something called LPS, which is called lipopolysaccharide. It is a component of specific bacterial cell walls. Um, And LPS is uh, really useful in scientific research because it is super inflammatory. So we go back to talking about our inflammation um, uh, discussion. And so because it's so inflammatory, we actually use it in a lot of cell culture research is what we call a positive control, meaning that we can put it on cells or whatever cells we're using at and know that that's going to elicit a robust inflammatory response. And then we can compare it to different other compounds that maybe we're looking for an anti-inflammatory response or just seeing if other compounds elicit an an inflammatory response and kind of compare it to something that we know elicits a strong inflammatory response. So LPS is important because um, for leaky, for quote unquote leaky gut, because it is a component of those bacterial cell walls. And so in theory, seeing um, LPS in circulation would be a method to kind of detect if you're having some of that leakiness and things that are getting through those intestinal cells that really shouldn't be. Um, And in theory, like LPS in circulation would elicit a lot of inflammation because we use this a lot in cell culture to elicit inflammation. However, Assessing LPS in circulation is very, very difficult. Um, LPS is basically, we can also call it endotoxin. It is basically everywhere and on every surface and contaminates everything in our environment. Um, So when you are taking a blood sample, those tubes that you're taking um, blood in, likely unless they have been processed and made in a specific endotoxin-free manner, often have LPS in them. And then to kind of go back to our talk about sepsis, if an individual has high levels of LPS in the body, um, they would know it. (laughs) It would be very, um, very apparent. Massive inflammatory and immune responses would be going on within the body. Um, And then the level of LPS that would be getting through the gut through like a quote unquote leaky manner is going to be very, very low. And it's going to be really hard to detect it, um, especially with the confounding factor of the fact that a lot of our collection methods are going to be contaminated with LPS. So it's going to be really low. This is actually, I have state 
mistakes in this and remember this because it's something I got dinged in for my um, qualifying proposal during my PhD <laughs> because I had proposed to measure LPS in the blood and I had an immunologist that measured LPS um, that did research on LPS and he was like, you absolutely can't do that. And so <laughs> I remember this one very, <laughs> very vividly. You got, like you can't you measure LPS in the blood. Well, and it's, you know, it's important to remember that. So LPS, as, as Jesse mentioned, is lipopolysaccharide. It's a integral component of pretty much all gram-negative bacteria, which include E. coli and salmonella. Many of those strains normally reside in our gut as part of our microbiome. And so, you know, trying to assess that in a fecal sample is completely useless because 50% of the weight of your feces is bacterial cells. So, of course, you're going to have bacteria in it. Um, You know, but the challenge becomes is that a lot of these tests or probes or, or assays are useful in kind of research, early discovery, as Jesse was describing, but these cannot be used for clinical diagnosis because they they don't demonstrate a cause of disease. They're looking at mechanisms or they're looking at possible cellular processes. And this is a way in which these can be misused to, you know, quote unquote, diagnose someone with inflammation or with, you know, you're processing sugar molecules inappropriately or you have bacterial contamination. And so they use this as evidence for this syndrome that doesn't really exist, which is actually kind of similar to the food sensitivity testing that we talked about in an earlier episode. And so that becomes a challenge, especially when you see people selling these, you know, mannitol lactulose tests online as a diagnostic for people to self-diagnose with leaky gut syndrome. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, and I think it completely ignores the fact that like we kind of talked about it earlier, but some level of like quote unquote leakiness is kind of normal. Like that's going to happen. Um, and then something that people don't realize is that like even things like exercise will transiently like increase intestinal permeability within our gut. Um, and we think it's kind of what we would kind of think of as kind of like a dose response effect, kind of like the balance between inflammation and anti-inflammation, where there's some benefit of having a level of like, quote unquote, leakiness in the gut um, for that reason. So like sending people with these at-home tests that are not validated, not diagnostic in any manner, um, and then being able to detect something in the lab that may be a valid method of like actual, you're getting a legit measurement. um, But the problem is that that step from what you're actually measuring to like clinical application isn't there. Like we don't really know what that means. It's kind of like, I get a lot of people that ask me about the microbiome. Should I sequence my microbiome? And I'm like, (laughs) there's nothing we can currently do with that information. Like you can look at it and say, okay, this is neat. This is where I'm at. But there's the step to clinical application is just not there. And that's the same with these. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I like the, you know, I like the analogy, um, you know, so using these sorts of tests to diagnose leaky gut syndrome is like looking at, you know, a potential bloody stool sample and saying, oh, well, you know, 
bloody stool caused some disease that caused your inflammatory bowel disease. You know, we know that bloody stools are a symptom of a variety of inflammatory bowel issues like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or even in my case, an anal fissure. You know, we know that changes in intestinal permeability may be a symptom of something like celiac disease, but it's not causing an illness. Yeah, exactly. And I think that highlights a lot of stuff that's in the gut health realm right now is that we have relationships that exist between things, but everything currently is mostly associative. So like things are associated. So like having increased intestinal permeability is associated with certain conditions, but that doesn't mean it's causing them. We don't have any sort of causative evidence for any of that stuff yet. And that brings us to our favorite phrase, correlation does not equal causation. Yes. (laughs) If anybody knows me, you know how much I love soda and pretty much have to have one every single day. Normally, I go for a Diet Coke or a Diet Ginger Ale, but there's actually a new kind of soda that tastes amazing and is actually loaded with fiber. It's called Olipop, and they have several delicious flavors like cola, root beer, orange squeeze, and cherry vanilla. Plus, these sodas have 9 grams of fiber per can, which is a great way to supplement your diet. As we know, most Americans are not consuming nearly the recommended amount of daily fiber, which is essential for a healthy GI system. And my husband, Ethan, who's an ER doc, can attest to that since he does manual disimpactions on a daily basis and would definitely appreciate Americans having more fiber in their diet. On top of that, 90% of Americans consume more than the USDA's daily recommended added sugar intake. Olipop is much lower in sugar than conventional sodas. So Olipop has about two to five grams, whereas most Most Americans get about 30 grams per day. And Orange Squeeze, our favorite flavor, has about 5 grams of sugar compared to Orange Fanta, which has 44 grams of sugar. Olipop is so confident that you will love their products. They offer a 100% money-back guarantee for orders placed through the website. If you're out in the stores, you can find Olipop at Kroger, Target, Whole Foods, Sprouts, and Wegmans. If you want to try Olipop yourself, you can actually get 20% off plus free shipping on your order at drinkolipop.com slash unbiased. That's D-R-I-N-K-O-L-I-P-O-P.com slash unbiased or use code unbiased at checkout. So, you know, we're talking about testing, but I have seen quite a bit online about treatments for leaky gut and foods that, quote unquote, repair leaky gut. So there's a huge supplement industry. um, And Andrea and I are always talking about how people should be leery of, you know, fads or supplements that um, don't have evidence behind them, of course. Um, It seems that there, there are many fad diets associated with leaky gut. So um, I I know I I was reading a bunch of them, but an emphasis on vegetables, roots and tubers, fermented vegetables, um, yogurts, and really um, this push to stay away from sugar in particular, because it leads to candida overgrowth. Um, So eating sugar, including fruit. Andrea, are you chuckling over there? No, yes. <laughs> You're so I'm chuckling. I'm okay. Sorry. <laughs> so, can Candida we talk about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I am doing air quotes over here, but yeah, you guys can't see it. So, so let's talk about this a little bit. What, what do you make of all this? So, the whole candida overgrowth thing, um, and kind of as Andrea chuckles in the background, um, 
basically, it's a bunch of, it's one of those other things. Like, yes, it can legitimately happen in someone and it could be a legitimate problem, but it's currently way overdiagnosed and not using the appropriate man, uh, measures. And people don't realize that candida, um, many, we have tons of different species of candida that exist within our gut, but they're commensal to our, to our gut. They are actually part of our normal microflora that exists in our gut. Um, and the idea that you have to reduce sugar um, in your diet to eliminate certain yeasts, certain bacteria doesn't make a lot of sense because even the quote unquote beneficial bacteria, beneficial yeast that exists within our gut are also going to metabolize those sugars or whatever you put in there. Um, microbes and yeasts really like sugar. They, I mean, like, I guess like us, we break down sugar pretty easily. Um, and so when they are given the opportunity to digest and metabolize things like sugar, they are going to rapidly do it, but it's not going to discriminate between uh, a more pathogenic candida versus a like more commensal uh, candida that exists within our gut. And that's just kind of the same with microbes too. So that's kind of where that logic on candida fails. Um, and then with the other treatments for leaky gut, you mentioned a lot of things that are just generally good practices in the field of nutrition um, to support overall digestive health. So I heard things that contained a lot of fibers, things that, you know, maybe um, some fermented foods that... Um, we don't necessarily, we aren't really sure if they have probiotic capacity within our gut to actually colonize, but we think that some of the bacteria within there that are producing different compounds that may be beneficial to us, so including things like fermented foods is thought to kind of be, you know, it may do something to kind of support your gut health, but it may not do anything other than taste good. So we're kind of at that with, with that status. But then we have where it gets a little more tricky is like removing things like dairy and gluten um, and cutting those things out of your diet. Um, there's really no evidence that you need to cut any of those things out of your diet, aside from individuals that have an allergy to any of those, have lactose intolerance, or have things like celiac disease, where they actually have to cut those out, or they have immune responses or adverse digestive responses that could legitimately lead to some, uh, quote unquote, inflammation in the gut that is undesirable. But aside from that, there's like no evidence that there's any specific diet that you need to eat to like, quote unquote, cure leaky gut. The best things that people can do just to support general gut health is just to include like a diverse grouping of fruits and veggies and whole grains and legumes and things within your diet. Um, and you're doing your part to support your gut health. But to cure leaky gut, we don't really have any evidence for that. And I think, you know, Jesse, you make an important point. You know, candida are, are different types of yeast that normally live in our gut. And, you know, we have we have this phenomenon that exists everywhere called microbial antagonism, which basically means that there's only a, a finite amount of square footage on and in our bodies that microorganisms can take up. And so even if candida was out competing, you know, a certain species of other yeast or other bacteria in your gut, you're only going to have so much growth of it because then the real estate is going to be taken up. It's not like, you know, your intestinal tract is going to be filled with yeast and that's going to break through and get into your bloodstream and all this sort of things. And so, you know, a lot of it is just a fundamental lack of understanding of this tightly regulated balance, right? 
right? You have this interplay between our bodies, our immune cells, these these commensal microorganisms that are our healthy microbiome, but also within the microbiome itself. There's all this interplay and communication between all these different species in there. And so eating sugar, (laughs) whether it's sugar from a fruit or sugar from a Pop-Tart, is not going to lead to this, you know, overgrowth and this systemic candida infection that, you know, is is often attributed to this chronic brain fog or these very generic, you know, symptoms. Like you said, you know, these things that are good practices, you know, increasing fiber intake, reducing alcohol consumption, reducing stress. I mean, you probably will feel better if you do those things, but it's not because you cured your leaky gut. It's because, those are good things for your general health, your physiology, your immune system functioning, and your microbiome, right? Your microbiome loves fiber, loves sugar, loves, you know, good nutrients. And so that's going to help you feel better in general. I think we often get into some of the the dangerous treatment realms when we see people pushing a lot of these supplements. Um, and if you guys haven't tuned into our supplement episode, you know, remember, supplements are not regulated for safety or efficacy. Many do not list full ingredient lists. Many can interact with actual medications that you've been prescribed. And so, you know, you want to steer clear of taking unverified and unproven supplements that are being marketed to alleviate your supposed leaky gut symptoms or or cure you of those. Yeah. And I find it really kind of hypocritical that a lot of the people that are touting to like cure leaky gut will tell you to cut out all of these quote unquote artificial ingredients and cut out dairy, cut out gluten. But if you come take my supplement, this supplement's going to help with cure your leaky gut. But that's un- like the FDA doesn't even pay attention to this. They just kind of make sure we check a few boxes with like our manufacturing practices and things like that. And we're good to go. So, you know, don't don't eat the foods that the FDA actually regulates, but take the supplement that the FDA kind of just like ta- um, tangentially regulates. Right, exactly. Um, and I think, you know, maybe the last thing we can briefly touch on is that, you know, as we mentioned, there's really no evidence for leaky gut as a syndrome to cause all of these illnesses that we kind of described in the beginning, things from chronic GI issues like diarrhea, constipation, bloating, um, headaches, brain fog fatigue, skin issues like acne or eczema, um, arthritis, depression, um, autoimmune disorders or autism. But but a lot of times, you know, these these symptoms, right, these these kind of generic systemic symptoms can be caused by an actual medical issue. Right. And so one of the issues is that people, practitioners um, may use leaky gut as a scapegoat for other illnesses, which will ultimately prevent those individuals from getting treatment for for actual medical issues. Jesse, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's uh, honestly incredibly scary. And in the field of the gut is one of the tricky, tricky organs to work with in terms of uh, like placebo effect. Um, because the gut is so integrated with our brain, sometimes... I mean, because stress is a big player in GI conditions, sometimes just the thought that you're doing something um, can actually help with some of the conditions or some of the symptoms that you're feeling. But like Andrea said, too, sometimes 
you do have a legit underlying condition that is not leaky gut and going to someone that is diagnosing you, quote unquote, with leaky gut and giving you a bunch of things that are not going to help what the legitimate condition you have um, is just delaying treatment um, and honestly reducing your quality of life for longer than you need to be and prevents you from getting the adequate care that you need to be. So it is incredibly scary. And I don't like to see um, I see way too much going on in like the health space on social media um, of these like like pseudo diagnoses. Um, and I've I've even worked with individuals that have come to me um, and have have gone through kind of these diagnoses. And I, I I work with them and I'm like, no, you need to go see a gastroenterologist. You don't need to be working with this practitioner that's telling you that you just got to take a bunch of these supplements for to cure your leaky gut. Such an important point. Um, Jesse, you know, you're a registered dietitian, so I'd love to hear any kind of last thoughts that you have, any advice for people that have maybe been kind of misled, you know, anything you feel is really important before we kind of wrap up the discussion today. Yeah. So to not downplay um, the severity of GI issues, because um, Andrea and Jess both kind of uh, we're talking about their GI issues. I've had GI issues for a large portion of my life too. So I can, I can like, firsthand speak to the fact that it definitely impacts your quality of life. But um, for most people, some of the best things that you can do for GI health and to support gut health are some of the most simple things. Um, they aren't flashy. They aren't super complex. For most people, eating enough fiber and a diverse uh, grouping of fruits, veggies, grains, legumes, things like that, eating a diverse diet can really help. Getting enough water, getting some regular exercise in, managing stress, getting enough sleep, um, even techniques like focusing on like mindfulness and breathing and stuff can really impact your gut health as well. And so... Those are really kind of don't ignore the low hanging fruit when it comes to kind of gut health. Sometimes it's addressing those things that have the greatest impact before reaching higher up on the tree and trying to go to all the flashy things like you need to take these supplements to cure your leaky gut. You have, uh, I think you have SIBO just based on a, a couple diagnoses. I think you have these food uh, um, sensitivities. You need to take this test. Like, Start at the bottom and ignore the pseudoscience flashy stuff that's kind of hidden at the top that seems so pristine and that you have to try to reach for that. Yeah, it's so funny because I feel like that is a theme that obviously applies to this topic, but so many other topics Mm -hmm. that we've covered, Andrea and and will cover. Yeah, Um, Jesse, thank you so, so much for joining us today. I learned so much from both of you. It was fun hearing you both nerd out. Um, And I think that people (laughs) really, really enjoy this. It's a hot topic. We get questions about it all the time. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I have to say it was our it was our number one patron voted topic for this year. So uh, we knew you were going to be the perfect person to tackle it with us. And you know, it's funny when you mention all these low hanging fruits, those are all the same things you're supposed to do to maintain a healthy immune system. Um, You know, it's, uh, you know, it's almost like if not- you just did some of the basic things <laughs> that a lot of our problems would go away. And again, that's yeah. not to that's not to ignore that like legitimate conditions do come up and, and those things are for not sure. gonna help those legitimate conditions. But for the most people, like starting with those basic things are some of the most important. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, this I wanna kind of end with this quote, which is leaky gut syndrome is the belief that a leaky gut is the source of all ailments and diseases. And I think thanks to the wonderful discussion with Dr. Jesse Hall. 
Kaufman, we were able to debunk that. Yes, there are legitimate gastrointestinal issues. Yes, there are some medical issues that have an association with in- with true increased intestinal permeability, but leaky gut syndrome in and of itself is not a medical diagnosis, and it is certainly not the cause for this wide array of, of ailments. So thank you all for joining us today. Um, a special thank you to Dr. Jesse Hoffman. And again, if you want to follow her on Instagram, she is at Jesse Hoffman underscore PhD. Um, she's always on there debunking myths and misinformation and providing people with amazing nutritional education. So we hope you all learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Jess, you want to shout out our patrons today? Sure, absolutely. So let me pull up their names here. All right. So um, we have three tiers of membership to choose from. And so we wanted to give some shout outs to our mad scientists. So thank you to Michael D'Ambrosio, health coach Stacy, Mary Grooms, Rachel Peterson, and Kristen Brunello. You guys rock. Thank you so much for your support. And if you want to help support the pod too, check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash unbiased science. Um, next episode, since it's going to be around Valentine's Day, we're going to be tackling a Valentine's Day themed topic, love and relationships from the micro to the macro. We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID-19 on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Woo!